Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. So, welcome to the Legal Zoom panel. Um, uh, from, from idea to deal, uh, my name is Christian Vesper. I'm the uh, Senior Vice President of uh, Development and Current Production for uh, Sundance Channel uh, Drama. Uh, just so that I have some context as having any reason to be up here. Um, I was a lawyer for October Films um, throughout most of the 90s and then um, at HBO and, and Sundance Channel when acquiring uh, their films. Um, so uh, on the panel today, we have uh, sitting next to me, Matt Lefferts from uh, Franklin Weinrib and, uh, sorry, there we go, Rudell and Vassallo, one of the uh, major New York law firms. These guys work with a lot of uh, independent filmmakers. We've worked with them for years um, um, on, on many different films and projects. Uh, next to him is uh, Joe Escalante. Uh, Joe is the uh, uh, founder of LegalZoom.com. But I also wish. <laughs> That's awesome. We, yeah, we have but, tape but on that? <laughs> also uh, uh, an entertainment lawyer, producer, and musician. So he's been on all sides of uh, deal-making and uh, you know, making ideas into reality. Uh, next to him, we have Andy Timiner, um, an a Hello. good, good old, old young friend of um, Sundance an Channel. Old friend. Old young friend. Still young. Still young. Um, uh, Andy uh, is a is sort of one of um, I think the preeminent documentary filmmakers around these days. And she, um, it's the 10th anniversary this year actually of when we met Andy. We uh, worked with her on her film Dig, um, which has recently been named um, what was it? One of the uh, the number one music film um, ever made. And it's it's amazing actually. Um, and uh, she's uh, also uh, working on a new project uh, called A Total Disruption, which we'll talk about later in the context of uh, making sure that uh, you're putting your film together correctly. And uh, next to Andy, we have um, Michael uh, Rosado Bennett, uh, a filmmaker with uh, uh, a documentary here this year, which is getting a great buzz and great reaction, um, lots of tears around it, I hear, um, called Alive Inside, a story of uh, music and memory. And... Um, I'll let, uh, Ed, when, when we get to that, I'll let Michael uh, also briefly describe what the film was about and what his experience was with that. Um, I think I want to start with um, throwing to um, Matt and Joe from the, uh, the legal perspective, um, from both of their, in both of their experience, what, have they, uh, what do you feel like is, is sort of the, um, the biggest mistake that most independent uh, filmmakers make with respect to... Um, you know, properly putting together all the uh, legal and financial components of a film. Um, I know that as a buyer, um, you know, we uh, we expect everything to be delivered perfectly. I, can I start? Sure. Yeah. Uh, hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, again, I'm at the law firm Franklin Weiner, Rudell, and Vassallo in New York, and we rep we do all types of entertainment law and uh, specifically a lot of independent film. And we represent producers, production companies from the very beginning, from development through financing, through production and distribution, uh, as well as actors and writers and directors and distribution companies. So we've seen all aspects of the process. And I guess my biggest issue that I would warn young filmmakers is oftentimes, more often than we would like, we would get someone to come to us with a finished film and say, hey, we got a distribution deal, can you do our deal? And we said, sure, absolutely, but you know, just send us all your chain of titles, send us all your releases, your agreements with your producers and your actors and your writers and any underlying rights you have and music clearance deals. And they're like, oh, well, I don't know if we have all those. Well, you know, that's a problem because a lot of, if not most, if not all, distributors need that information, need, those, need that documentation and those rights in order to take your film and distribute it. So I guess my biggest issue with uh, 
the biggest problem for filmmakers for me is not getting us involved early enough. I know it sounds like a shameless plug, but it's mm. really true in that you need to start getting your ducks in a row when you're first thinking about your film, when you're writing your script and you're in development uh, on through, because otherwise, if you do it after doing it looking back, it can be uh, tough, expensive, uh, and difficult. And uh, my uh, interaction with filmmakers is primarily from them calling me on my radio program. I do a radio program called Barely Legal Radio, and it's all you filmmakers can call me every Sunday. I'm sitting there for two hours waiting for your calls on anything that has to do with intellectual property or uh, filmmaking or music or anything in the entertainment industry. And I get a lot of calls from filmmakers, similar problems that, the, that are faced by Matt, but it's a little more frantic, maybe a little more crazy. They can't even afford parking at a law firm. And they get to me, and they, uh, they have just fantastical ideas about what is okay in terms of delivering a film. And when Christian says he wants a film delivered and he wants it buttoned up, uh, he's, if you don't have your film buttoned up and you don't have the, the you know, certain agreements and the music is, even, is, is a whole can of worms, most people don't have anything close to what they need to have to tighten up all their music rights. If you don't have that stuff, the distributor or the, the buyer will move on to the next film. There, there's not, uh, it's not really a seller's market. And so if you don't have this stuff uh, correctly put together, you're not gonna sell your film. And then you gotta go back, you gotta go raise more money, you gotta cut people out of your film. And the number one problem that I face usually is music. People have a, some kind of fantasy about what they need out of music. They talk to band members and say, band member says, you can use my music in a film, and they, and they don't uh, realize that the band member doesn't have the rights to his film. In, if the music's really good, the, more, the better the music is, the, more, the bigger chance he has no rights to his own music. He, he's, he's, he's sold, his songs are so great, a guy gave him the, uh, an advance for his publishing. His, uh, his recordings are so great, they are uh, financed by a, a major record label. So you're, you're, you're not, you don't talk to that guy. Okay, of course that guy wants to be in your movie, and he's gonna supply stuff. He might not even be able to compose original stuff for your movie, because he has a deal. So music, kind of things that Matt was talking about, um, agreements with above the line talent, of course, but even below the line people, you got union people, it's a can of worms. You got, you, you got to pay a little bit more attention at the beginning of your process. And that's why it's good people are at things like this. Andy, she sees it. Uh, she's good at this. She, um, yeah, she delivers yeah. buttoned up films. So I, she can, I, was she just can say, I was just saying upstairs that um, Dig, where we first worked with Andy, was, uh, and I would love to kick it over to you, Andy, to talk about sort of some of the issues you have faced and how, you, how you've dealt with them over the years. Um, but you know what was impressive is that Dig is about two difficult musicians, and and when Nandi delivered the film to us, it was, you know, we were able to focus, frankly, on promoting the film and 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 getting people excited about it rather than on muddling through legal issues. So, um, well, it's it's interesting because the film itself uh, was actually generated. It was the the impetus for it was, I was looking at the collision of art and commerce, and could I maintain my integrity? My question was. Could I do that and reach a mass audience, or would that, you know, would it be diluted? That was what started me filming ten bands that became those two. And the irony is, not a hair on the head of that film had to be changed by either subject, and they were very difficult, notorious subjects: the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. And you know, Anton came out in the press against the film as we predicted, but he didn't ask for any edits to the film at all. Um, and we cleared the music relatively easily with them. The dandies were signed to Capital, so that was uh, another thing. So what you have is you have, you know, you have your publishing and you have your master and the musician and the, or publishing company controls the publishing and usually a label in the old old days, which was like yesterday, the label would would play a role. So um, so that was relatively simple compared to we live in public. Um, was like a heart attack after a heart attack. But I will say we had to change. After Sundance, um, uh, the, Anton made one record deal with TVT Records. And that guy, there was a, a lot of songs from an album called Strung Out in Heaven in the movie. And he said he wanted one-third or a half of the proceeds, ownership of the film, in exchange for us keeping that music in. Because it, you got to understand, the music industry is, if you think the film industry is crazy, the music industry is like 
Uh, it's, you know, it's like mafia, you know? There's thuggery so, <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So I was like, I just was like, well, guess what? Anton's a really prolific musician. How about we lose your soundtrack from the film and you don't have anything in the film and we change out all the music. And so we just had to re-edit the film okay. to get him out. Um, so by the time you got it, it was clean. Um, with We Live in Public, I want, want to say you as filmmakers need to keep in mind to release your subjects right off the bat before you you know, roll camera or after one day if you want to establish a trust and a rapport, but you say, I really can't continue on without a release form. Um, you say release them. You mean get make them sign a release? Yes, get okay. an appearance release. Um, run that appearance release by me if you have to. I don't care. I'm at Andy Timoner on Twitter. I always help <laughs> everybody. Um, and, uh, and, I mean, you know, make sure it's thorough. It's in perpetuity. It's all rights. And if you can throw in materials... Do that because if they hand you books, tapes, anything, pictures, that'll be released as well as part of that release form. Um, if you're shooting an event, release the event by rolling camera past a general release. Uh, with We Live in Public, I'll just say this, I don't want to dominate this panel, but We Live in Public um, has an amazing story of legal mayhem. Um, so the masters were stolen twice, once by the main subject. I dropped the film, and then when I won Sundance for Dig, he actually shifted it to, to offering me creative control, full ownership, or half ownership, and sent me the masters. The second time, an investor stole the masters. And my regular Hollywood lawyer couldn't handle it. Was just like, I don't, I don't know what to do. You know, so I got an independent lawyer involved in getting the masters back. Um, but that wasn't even it. The real problem came with the music, again, as you said. And that was, I had 13 songs in the film, I had the support, because they loved the film, of bands like Sigaras, David Bowie waived his fee, because he had his publishing. Uh, Jane's Addiction waived their fee. But then there was dealing with the record labels. And I was told again and again by the music supervisor, I must have had 13 heart attacks, that it was the soundtrack was not going to clear. I mean, even down to like the week that we were transferring it to 35 millimeter. And it was like, so it came down to that. And then even then, one song in all that didn't, uh, there was one version of a La Tigre song that needed to be a different version, and they called, and they saw the theatrical, and I hadn't switched that song, we hadn't switched that song, and that's where E&O comes in. You have to have it, and, uh, and thank insurance. God we did. Yeah, e errors and omissions insurance. It was an error on our part. We apologized and paid the money, you know, or we would have been done, so anyway. Well, and I, I, I think Michael, you, you've had a, you, you, the intent of your filmmaking and and your experience is somewhat different. I mean, you've managed much of it. Um, you've told, you've said on your own. Yeah, um, but it's it's interesting. Um, I literally was in the middle of a massive legal battle, that 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 was signed. The agreements were signed like the day before Sundance. So, um, and literally, it was to the point where we were almost going to, the film, we didn't know if this film was actually going to be shown at Sundance here, right now. And so I, 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 I made this film in my bedroom, you know, with, I had two guys in my bedroom. My wife um, almost killed us, killed me. She was like, get, get a studio. And I'm like, I can't afford a studio. I'm a documentary filmmaker. This is New York City. I, you know, anyway, so, so. So, so for two years, my you know I had two guys in my bedroom helping me make this film, and and um, you know my film is is it's not a commercial project. I mean I, I'm I was literally just I, I I was filming one day just like any of you guys do, and I filmed this one thing, and as I was filming it, I I just started to cry, and I knew I just I just said I have to make this film, and so but it took me a long time to make make the film, you know, and I but luckily. Oh my God, filmmakers, just like after you got your report with your subjects, you know, I, I accidentally downloaded my release from the internet and it just so happened that I downloaded the most incredible release ever written. I mean, his, you know, ch this one subject is children can't even sue me or anything. So I, I, um, I just urge you to get those releases early. And if I hadn't gotten those releases early, um, this legal problem that I ended up having would have bit me in the ass. Can I, I can't say that. There was a subject of yours that was suing you? I, I, yeah, I really, I really can't go into it because, <laughs> it, 
well, I, I, bedroom, it was just I, bedroom. <laughs> no, but it was got it, weird. It, 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 but but because I had this release and it was signed early and it was ironclad, it, it, there was just no case really, and um, you know so. That, that's, you know, well, I think um, um, Andy and, 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 and Michael, and one of the questions that, uh, you know, and, and we've all been doing this for a long time, that, uh, you know, I think, you know, filmmakers are often reluctant to, to let go of the passion and the art of what they're doing um, in favor of thinking about the, the, the sort of bloody realities of, of the um, legal and financing um, aspects of filmmaking. I mean, what, how do you balance that out in, in your process? Well, I've Art always every every birthday cake, I have I have closed my eyes and and wished for a producing partner, <laughs> and I still haven't found that producing partner. Um, I started the company 21 years ago with my brother, uh, but he went off to reality TV land, and um, and I can only afford him once in a while when I have millions of dollars. So, um, I pretty much have to just kind of realize that I am an entrepreneur. I'm a startup entrepreneur. I'm a filmmaker who every single film is like giving birth to a child. That child is its own entity. And it's like, I've got to take care of it. If I want to get the child to college, I have to cross my T's and dot my I's. I have to be responsible from day one. And it's just, it's just a reality as much as I want. Would love to just, oh, we all love each other. And like you were saying, get them early on when the love is there. It's not that the love necessarily goes away, but things get complicated and you end up capturing scenes that maybe people don't want you to have. And I'm not a gratuitous, you know, I don't, I'm, I could have gone way darker with Dig, actually. You know, I don't do that. But at the same time, Anton could have decided he didn't want to be nodding off on heroin in the film. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that, could, that would have been a reasonable image move on his part. It was not possible for him to do that. And so, you know, you've got to do that as a filmmaker. You're here to capture as authentic, as close to the truth as possible. And in order to do that, legal's really, really important, you know? So you just have to take the time out of your day. I probably, I work at night mostly on the creative stuff because during the day it's business. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that I think, you know, it's always good to have a partner, whether it's a lawyer or a business person or a business uh, partner, uh, producer, who is doing that stuff for you while so the artists can make oh, their and, art. And not to take away from that, by the way, when people ask me, well, I'm going to Sundance or I'm going to Tribeca, what do I need, Andy? I s do I need a sales agent? I say, you know what, I don't know. Let me, let's talk about that. It, you know, not, not necessarily, they, they fill their slates so to the brim these days. You may get their attention. They want to make the biggest, easiest deal. They may not do the coolest, smartest, cobbling together deal that can be done in 2014. You can do that for yourself. You need a lawyer. You need a lawyer at all Thank times. You. <laughs> yes. Well, and LegalZoom, actually, can I say one thing about LegalZoom? LegalZoom is, is, is a pretty radical company. Um, I came to, I, of course, whatever. I think I even incorporated with them years and years ago, but I didn't realize that one of my best friends from Yale was one of the founders, Eddie Hartman. And I didn't, I didn't realize that until I was shooting A Total Disruption, which is my current project, and what it is, is it's documenting the top thought leaders of today, the people who are pushing the envelope, the entrepreneurs and innovators who are creating the world that we live in in this tectonic shift we're experiencing. And I release it in full, like, every week. It's a constantly releasing documentary online. And we, we finance it a lot by doing branded content pieces as well, telling deep, emotional, accessible stories of how these companies came to be. Eddie and I sat down and realize that the story behind LegalZoom is incredible. They're one of the most disruptive companies. I mean, it used to be you had to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get a will, you know, something so personal and so vital. And now you can do it for like $69 thanks to LegalZoom. You know, as a, as a, as a young entrepreneur, um, you know, as a, I, I'm not young, but as a startup entrepreneur, I believe we all have to do that every film. LegalZoom can be a partner at this point in a way that, that it's like the new phase of their company that you really all should look into. Um, yeah, and when, when Michael, well, Michael Saini downloaded a form, uh, from he got, no, he got very lucky. Uh, you just have to, you have to trust your forms. You can, you, obviously the LegalZoom forms have been vetted and it's not a complete solution for entertainment industry uh, projects, but they're, they're forms, you can trust them. Uh, there's a book uh, by Michael Donaldson called The Legal Guide to Independent Filmmaking, uh, and then Lisa Callup, I think you, she, she worked with her. She's one of the authors of that. She, those are some good forms in there. Uh, 
you just got to trust the forms. The forms are out there. You can look it up. You can Google fair use. Uh, well, you, you, I'm just saying you don't know from the internet what kind of form you're getting. <laughs> uh, uh, you should trust it a little more than just like randomly, but in the frantic state of, uh, of, of your film. Uh, yeah, I think God was smiling on you and said this film had to come out. Well, one, of, one of the questions I would ask, ask you, Matt, is, is you know, there, there's, there, obviously filmmakers need to strike a balance between doing things on their own and then issues do progress to a level that just takes a certain expertise and things like, is fair use something that I can rely on? And, you know, you need to have the expertise of a lawyer perhaps or, or a sales agent to say, you know, Sundance Channel doesn't accept that or HBO won't accept that. And, you know, are there other, in a, you know, in addition to paying for high-priced, high-profile lawyers, are there any other resources along with LegalZoom that young filmmakers, before they have the money, perhaps, um, can, can tap into? Yeah, yeah, and the forms are great. And if you can get, especially with clearance forms, and you, if you can get people to sign them, and they're good forms, trustworthy like LegalZoom, that's great. Oftentimes, someone will look at a form and say, I'm not signing that, or cross something out, or make some changes. And then you need to really think about whether that change is okay, or it's gonna get you in trouble, and... Yeah, then you need advice. You need advice. So. And what, what would you say to filmmakers? I mean, advice is expensive. So. And when it comes to fair use, uh, you're you're going to get an opinion, a different opinion from every, even every attorney that you talk to. It's a it's a very young field. There's there's very little settled law. There's great cases like the um, the the Ben Stein film uh, where he used. A uh, Yoko Ono he used uh, Imagine, the song Imagine. He's able to put it in his film, not ask Yoko Ono for permission. And um, she said, how do you use my film, my song, or the song I control in this film? And he says, it's a fair use because the lyrics in the film, the lyrics in the song are describing uh, my point. My point is related, of my documentary is related to the lyrics in the film. I have to in the song, I have to, to use this song to tell my story. I'm only using is, is, uh, is a, the least amount I, uh, I can get away with to tell my story. You know, these little, these, uh, there's four prongs to the fair use doctrine. It's very complicated, but he won. He, uh, ben Stein won, and he was able to use a film without a song, without permission in a film. Pretty stunning, but you would never get a distributor uh, uh, to agree that that was a fair use. He would... He had a lot of muscle behind him. Well, and that, that's, a, that's a defense in that... Yeah, it's just a defense to, a, to an... Right, to and, and, and the distributor is going to, going to want to avoid having to even go there. Yeah. Um, sort of take, taking that point and shifting into the, 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 the legal issues surrounding um, financing. And uh, we were talking beforehand about there have been some rule changes with the SEC. Um, I think it'd be great if you guys could talk about, from the legal perspective, what pitfalls now exist, and then, and then if the filmmakers could just address how they, how they have been dealing with um, financing questions in, in this new world. You know, I'll say one thing, because uh, the, uh, Matt is, works in the nuts and bolts of this, but I will just say one thing from, uh, uh, that it, from the standpoint of someone, I own a media company, we try to you know, put together films and stuff. Uh, I work with other uh, producers raising money, and it's, it's really strange to, to consider that it is I illegal to sell your film in certain ways to investors. There's securities laws against certain way, certain types of, in, of uh, the way you're going to attract an investor. And it comes down to this kind of, in a simplistic way, uh, if you hype your film too much and tell the person they're going to make a lot of money out of it, that could be illegal. You could be committing securities fraud. And uh, Matt will tell you uh, what, <laughs> what that really means. So without putting anybody to sleep here about the nuts and bolts of uh, financing in SEC, uh, you know, th there's a lot of ways to raise money, and there's more and more these days. Crowdfunding has become a great boon for f independent filmmakers uh, to a certain extent. I mean, it's very rare that you're going to finance your entire film on crowdfunding. Uh, to get back to the SEC first, when you have investors invest in your film, you're selling securities. So you're now subject to the securities laws. And you need proper documentation. You need to file with the U.S with the SEC, you need to file with, with your states that your investors are coming from. There's called blue sky laws. And if you don't, you can get in trouble with those investments and they can be nullified. So uh, I guess the, the basic way that, at least for our clients, the way they raise money is through private equity. Private equity, the simplest way to do it is, is when you only uh, get money from accredited investors. Sounds like a very sleepy term. It basically means someone who's sophisticated and has a lot of money and is not going to lose their shirt and it's not their last $5,000 or last $1,000. 
Um, so if you're marketing and you are soliciting and taking money from those kind of people, you're okay. Your disclosure requirements are very small. You, have, you put together a document for those investors and they will invest in your film and, and you will have to file and you'll be, you'll be okay. Um, if you start to stray from that, it gets a little complicated. There is, there's been a couple changes, developments in the law. One, this past year, they changed that law. So instead of saying you can't go even t with your selling document, which your selling document, by the way, is going to say, hey, you know, you're going to lose all your money, and this is a very risky industry, and on and on and on, and it's going to scare a lot of people away. But sophisticated investors know that that's the way you, we, you have to do it. Um, so the development this year was that you can now go out to the general public, advertising the Internet, and say, hey, we are, we are raising money for a film, and we want all you to invest. The trick is you still have to only take money from accredited investors. So you can now advertise to the, to the whole world and to anybody and to mom and pop, but you can still only take money from accredited investors and there's actually a higher requirement of, of documenting and making sure that those people actually are accredited investors. The second development, which is, hasn't taken place yet, the SEC has proposed rules which are now uh, open to the public for comment. Basically, is called, it's also called crowdfunding, so there's two really separate types of crowdfunding and it gets confusing. This is equity crowdfunding where the rules that are proposed, where you can go out and solicit anybody. And you, know, you can take money from anybody, a limit of a million dollars for a full year that you can raise. Uh, and there's certain requirements about how much money each person, depending on how much money they make, can invest in your film. But you can basically go out to anybody. Uh, those rules are not set yet. We're expecting them to be passed in 2014. But um, I'm a little skeptical. It's still going to be, there's a lot more disclosure from the SEC that's required. So it's going to be very expensive to do. And I'm not quite sure it's going to fly. But those rules should be in place sometime this year. The other type of crowdfunding, of course, as many know, is Kickstarter and Indiegogo and Rocket Hub, which is where you're raising money. People are uh, giving you money. And you're giving them t-shirts. You're giving them DVDs of the film when it's finished. And there's no equity. They don't own anything. But they've now put in their $25 or $100. And you're raising some of your money. And by the way, in addition to raising your money, you're marketing your film because you're now building a base of people who are now you're, you're reaching out to with your Rocket Hub campaign or your Indiegogo campaign or your Kickstarter campaign and you're sending videos and, and you're attracting people to follow your film. So very valuable ways to finance, uh, but you have to know how to do it and do it right. So, so Michael and Andy, are, are you both fully in compliance with SEC regulations? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I crowdfunded uh, Total Disruption uh, it was B last year in April, and um, we had put we had started putting out webisodes and launched the site and launched the channel. Um, actually, the the October previous like whatever 2012, and uh, it was actually the Kickstarter that put us on the map. I mean, nobody even knew we existed until we did that, and we were 150 percent subscribed or funded. Raised one hundred and forty-four thousand um, dollars and asked had asked for ninety-six thousand, which was making everyone bite their nails for a web series. It was a little bit going out on a limb, um, but it it was more the marketing, it was more the community than anything. I mean, we blew through that money in like three months, but the the family that we've created, the the force behind a total disruption and what we're about to do is you know really exciting and it's all and it, we, I'm so glad I did that I was so reluctant to do that I didn't want to hold my hand out to my fans but glad I did well, uh, well uh, I kind of have an, an interesting story about that uh, we Kickstarter we did Kickstarter too um, we asked for $50,000 we got $51,000 um, but it was kind of funny because um, there was an accident with my film in uh, that one of my one of my subjects Dan Cohen of music and memory um, I put a little clip on his website because he wanted to show something to somebody and I, so I just put this little clip a little cut from our film it wasn't a finished piece it wasn't a trailer and um, some kid from reddit.com found it and my son came running into the room and he said dad dad I think they're talking about your film on reddit and I was like oh cool and, and we watched it go from 300 views to 400 views and we were like oh wow this is really great and then the, the next morning, it was up to 17,000. By the next evening, it was up to 1.4 million. Um, within a week, it was up to 6 million views. And this, this, this little clip just literally made our, it just was like, wow, the whole world was interested in our film. And like CNN, we were, like everybody was calling us from all over the world. And so I said, all right, wow, Kickstarter is going to be easy. 
you know, there's eight million people that have, nine million now, that have seen this clip. I'm just gonna put up a thing and we're gonna ask for $50,000 and we're, you know, it's just gonna come pouring in. Oh my God, Kickstarter is hard. <laughs> and, I mean, and, and I mean, I, I, I mean, we raised $50,000, but it took like three of us working full time for a month and a half. So I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm just saying that, you know, it's crowdfunding you is give not- stuff. What? You have to give them it's stuff. It's not just the stuff you give afterwards. It's like you have to run a campaign. You, you have, have to run it. Yeah. yeah you have to update. It. You have to stay connected. You have to blast it. You have to make alliances with other artists and people right. who are also going to bring their communities into it. I mean, it's a thing. And actually, I got to say, both of our Kickstarters are archived. If you're curious, you just go to kickstarter.com and look at a total disruption or look at Alive Inside. And you can go down the campaign to see how... We ran it. Um, yeah, and, 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 and now that's a very good thing to do if you want to try that because you need mentoring in this, in this space and, ha and how to do it. And, and I'm, I'm very glad we did it. But the point is, is it took two months out of me making my film to do Kickstarter. So, and that's, 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 a real, um, that's a real thing to think about too. I think well, we were, we, what we did was we actually did a trip to San Francisco and film Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Lyft and all of these amazing companies and people while we were doing the Kickstarter. And as challenging as that was, we always had one person dedicated to throwing stuff on social media. A Jack ended up doing a, a look direct to camera endorsement of a total disruption. Alexis Sohanian, who founded Reddit, right, see, did an on-camera thing. This is a smart person. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just, I mean, I better, it's pretty meta, right? If yeah, I'm like, yeah. if I'm the person documenting the internet revolution, I better know how to use it. Right. Right. So, but, but my greatest alliance was Amanda Palmer, who had the biggest crowdfunding campaign in music history. And um, as the star of one of the series on a total disruption, which is called Chief Executive Artist. And it's really about how you can connect with your fan base. So I urge you to look at that because she's really amazing. And um, there's a few episodes about her up there right now. You can learn a lot from her. I'm actually making a movie about her as well uh, called One Million Misfits. And um, I just, you, I wanna answer something you brought up before, yep. which is a resource. Michael Donaldson actually was on my talk show. Um, I'm actually here as press um, for the third year in a row. I cover documentaries. I, I film my community and um, we dialogue in a really real way. And we also have sometimes attorneys on the show or other people. So we're about 125 episodes in or something. It's on the internet. It's called BYOD, Bring Your Own Doc. It's, um, if you just search Ondi, O-N-D-I, and then BYOD, it's actually on a, a channel called the TV. and there's an episode, you can just scroll down, of Michael Donaldson, not only talking about fair use and how to use it and how not to use it, but also with clips of like really good examples of fair use, really close calls and things like that. Because they're all um, close calls. Yeah, because you may not accept fair use at all, and right. that's something that you may have to deal with down the line, but you may not have $100,000 to contribute to Warner Brothers' very deep pockets for use of their Gilligan's Island clip or whatever, you know? If you are using that clip and you're changing the meaning of it in some way or using it as a commentary, it may qualify for fair use, and until you get a TV offer... You know, that's yeah. good enough. I mean, We Live in Public never did TV. It's been all over the internet. It's all over, you know, we did a theatrical. And we never had to deal with anything for the Gilligan's Island. Yeah, and, well, I mean, and I think it, it, it's talking to these guys, talking to filmmakers with some experience. I mean, fair use takes a village, uh, essentially, to, to sort of manage whether or not you can use it. If you're going to defend it, to right. actually manage whether you're going to use it, you can book an hour with Michael Donaldson yeah. or an hour with these guys or call Joe on the weekend. <laughs> and go look at BYOD and then make your best judgment yeah. call. Well, there's, there's another uh, resource w w which we used, which was the Stanford Fair Use Project. I don't know. They, they accepted our film and they did the whole... Because um, my, my film is about music, specific music that these elders with Alzheimer's listen to. And when, and when they hear it, it, it goes into their brain and wakes up parts of their mind that, are, that's go that, that nobody ever kno knew was there. So it's so specific. It's like my film is like the fair use darling because right. there is no other option. I can't replace it. It, it, it is this specific right. sound. You, you can't tell your story without that copyrighted work. So right. you and get to use it. Right. That's how you it works. must see the trailer for his film and then run and just 
knock people out of the line and go see it if you're going to be here because it, it's amazing. People go from out, just gone. They're checked out. They're gone. And then they hear the music from that they used to love and dance to. And their eyes just open. It's amazing. So, so and there's no replacing that. On that note, well, let's I, switch I, that song out. <laughs> no, <laughs> I had to do that because there, the the Beach Something Boys. Easier to clear wakes this guy up. If anybody knows Bra- the Beach Boys, you know this one woman. She like came alive to the Beach Boys, and but we wanted to use it for a little bit longer than fair use. So we called up the Beach Boys and we said, please, can we use this? To, we'll pay you ten thousand dollars. Can we use this song? And they said no. Oh. And now I'm like, oh my God. So now, and apparently it's like not good. You can kind of claim fair use, but don't you ever claim, uh, you know, try to buy it and then be denied yeah. and then do fair use. Yes, well, the, the, good the, advice. The court cases, though, have said that, they, the, that I've seen that if you ask and you're denied, you can still claim fair use. That's true, that is In true. the court, but, you know, and it all comes down, it doesn't matter what the court say, it doesn't matter what the law says, it matters what the paranoid lawyer at the distributor says, and you got to satisfy that guy. And sometimes it's not even a lawyer. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I also want to add to that. Back to the paranoid lawyers, please. Yes. Yeah. Can we talk? Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're certain distributors uh, and television companies will do a review and say, listen, these are too close to calls. I don't want to take this film like this. But they will often take films that have errors and emissions insurance. And but then you go to the Arizona Emissions Insurance to get it uh, to your broker, and they will say, all right, well, they're going to do a review as well, and then they're going to say the same things. So you need someone to evaluate that, and, and often what we do is we evaluate firms for E&O purposes, uh, clearance purposes, and then we'll talk to the E&O carrier and say, no, 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 this is why this is okay. This is our analysis, and then they'll say, okay, you know what, you're right. So then we've been very successful in getting E&O insurance for our clients uh, after doing the analysis and talking with them, and then they will get distribution because the distributors will take it. Law firm can, can provide the case law that will convince them. Say, look, this is what how people have ruled, and we think it'll go in this direction. That's that's money well spent at a law firm. So I think that overall, you can do a lot on your own, but you should also include in your budget and in your fundraising campaign money for legal for legal. And Absolutely. you know, and you know. Yeah. Um, with that, I think we'd like to open it up to anyone. Uh, if anyone has any questions for the panel, I mean, I have a question, yeah, like. I, and I, 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 it's kind of basically a, a more basic philosophical question, and that is that I, this is actually my first finished documentary. I have five unfinished documentaries, but this is my first finished one, and, and I think I'm, I'm pretty much an idealist. And, and my question is, is like, isn't it kind of crazy that like our communal culture is like owned by other people? You know, like, like, like here I am dealing with these elders, and, and they made this music famous. You know, they were the, they've bought it 20 times in their life. And yet right now, to get them their music, I have to buy it from Apple, you know, or I have to buy it from, from you know, I have to buy it. And, like, I just think it's so crazy the way, like, the public culture is our culture now. We don't have church. We don't have, um, you know, we have the public culture. And isn't it kind of crazy that it, it, that everything is so owned? And, you know, I, I know that's your guy's business. A man's got to eat. A man's got to eat. But... Thank God for fair use, because it's the only thing that I think creates a sense of freedom in this thing that we share, which is our communal culture. If it weren't for fair use, quite literally, um, you know, the the legal entities and the major corporations of the world would literally have a stranglehold on our ability to communicate about our own culture. So... um, You can always put your film on BitTorrent, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay, and there's there's the option. So you spend four years of your Actually, life. You don't even have to. Somebody else will do it for yeah. you. They probably have already. <laughs> you spend four years of your life, and 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 you make something, and then and then you know give it away. Okay, that's fine. But yeah, over there. Hi, my name is Lindsay Spiller. Um, it's a very good point, and uh, I'm in the legal community too, and we we kind of think about Creative Commons kind of alternatives but you know they can turn that on you too and they can say why don't you give your film away and that's the problem so you've you've devoted four years of your life to that you don't necessarily want to give it out freely so there's got to should right well it's it's an ongoing debate it's an ongoing debate and i think what you're what you're asking for is some sort of balance and i'm totally in favor of that but it is it's a tough where that balance is met it's a tough call a really exciting um, trend called Pay What You Want, and it's something that worked for Radiohead, 
they they're the first who pioneered that and uh i mean they made tons more money than they made ever putting a price point on their record rainbows i think it's called rainbows and, i mean they just asked people to pay what they want um simon close who made pirate bay afk put his film out the day that it premiered at berlin he put it it was on BitTorrent and VHX. You could pay what you want, and he already recouped like within a month or two because people want to pay for art. So I wonder, I wonder if there's a future in terms of music being offered that way. The problem is the music industry has collapsed, you know, under its own weight in many ways and is full of fear. And so they actually charge more than ever. Well, that, you that, know? that's kind of happening in music. But then when you get to the ticket prices. They're through the roof, so they're going to get you on the ticket prices because they because they know you're they they and the licensing yeah because yeah, they know that that's it's the less forgiving than ever yeah you know that's the only way they make their money now that's the only way they make their money is a live performance or in off us filmmakers and yeah, so we are the sources of their money it's I mean, true but what you got to do is most favored nations at all times and you you know I had to that dude I forget his name from LCD Sound System he's such a jerk. Uh, like the day before Sundance, he uh, with We Live in Public, he said forty thousand dollars to use New York, I love you, which was like Josh Harris loses his mind and he's leaving New York and Twin Towers fall. And it's like the perfect song, you know. And I had offered to make a music video for him in exchange, it up, but it has to be ten thousand, otherwise it drives up the price of every other song in the soundtrack. No, you independent filmmakers think you can ten thousand wasn't enough for him. You think you you know should get your music for free. So thank God for the Pixies. They saved the day. But, I mean, you got to throw that song out. You just got to say bye. Any other questions? It seems to me that at some point, like, it's worked successfully because it stayed small and it's getting larger and larger. You've got Zach Braff and Spike Lee and all of these uh, Warner Brothers <laughs> sort of doing these crowdfunding campaigns. At what point do you sort of in the legal world think that there's going to be cases from people who have invested in something that ends up either A, never getting made because that often happens with films, <laughs> or B, ends up making millions and Warner Brothers profits without ever returning anything other than giving them a DVD or, you know. Have you ever seen the release language on the Kickstarter things? Yeah. No, but it, it's true, and there's a certain amount of uh, people talk about a certain amount of oversaturation in the in the crowdfunding world right now. I mean, how many times do you get pinged on your Facebook page and your you know tweets from so and so? We, they want twenty five dollars from you in exchange for a T shirt. Um, so there's that danger, but you know it can be a very valuable tool. And as, as Andy talked and talked about, you know, again, it is it can be a huge marketing tool for you. So if you do it right, and you know, so it, it depends. You know. It was once said that Kickstarter is what Someone suggests when they want you to get out of their office. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I think it's a great tool for filling out a budget or right before distribution as well. But to answer your question, on a Kickstarter, you know, you don't ever, your money, your credit card is not charged unless you make your goal. So you have a much higher, I mean, that's what I wonder about Indiegogo is would I have gotten, I, was, I don't think I would have gotten to 150% of my goal if I had, done that thing they have where you don't have to make your budget. Yeah, they right, so imagine if you don't make the budget. I wonder what the data is on this. I don't actually have the data on this. Do you guys know? Like if you get, you know, you're asking for 100000 you make 25000 everybody's cards get charged, and then you run off to Mexico. I mean, I don't know what you do, right? That's why it's do such a good question. As it gets a higher profile, the, there's more uh, the, the people you can sue. Are have deeper pockets, so th there's going to be more uh, lawsuits. But the releases are pretty tight. I don't think. I mean, I think you willingly are are contributing to that project more than say investing. You're becoming a funder, you know, backer, a backer. That's the, that's the terminology. I guess this question's uh, more for Matt. Um, you know, I'm an attorney in New York, and I know one of the biggest concerns, obviously, is when you're approached by clients, the co the cost. I know it's a huge factor. Um, in your practice, do you ever if, if someone approaches you and they can't necessarily afford your rates, do you ever refer them out to any of the pro bono arts organizations like Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts in New York, which I know does a lot of work with um, for arts and independent filmmakers? Is that something that you would recommend as an option for someone who couldn't afford necessarily like maybe you know, firm rates? I think it's a great idea. You know, 
volunteer lawyers for the arts particularly, I, I worked for probably 20 years ago when I was first starting out as a lawyer, and it, it was great for me to learn the business, but it was also a great uh, service to people that couldn't afford legal counsel. You know, you're not going to often get the most sophisticated legal counsel at VLA. You're getting young lawyers and volunteers, uh, you know, off hours. So it's, if you can find it and get it, it's great. Um, but you know, the, you talk to lawyers. I mean, we work with our clients and and try to you know, develop a plan that works for everybody. And it doesn't always work. And but uh, you know, it's it's difficult. Uh, any other questions? Yeah, I have a. I think it's a basic question, but I stumbled over it a lot when I did a docu play because um, I had a lot of different legal opinions. Therefore, spent a lot of money and ended up in the place that was the simplest after something like $6,000 and five different attorneys. What entity do you contract under, LLC, S-Core, individual, and at what point did you make that decision? Um, I, I did LLC, and I have no clue if that was the right thing. So <laughs> I, your tax I really don't know anything. Sure. Uh, my tax person and attorneys have different opinions. Um, yeah. I have done LLCs, DIG was an LLC, but then we closed it after proceeds just kind of dried up, you know? It's like when it stops doing business, you're paying $800, you, you know, annually to keep that entity open. Um, I, my company now is an S-Corp, uh, Interloper Films, um, and a, a total disruption, I believe we're gonna be working with LegalZoom as part of their small business program to determine what is the right thing to do with it. Right now we've been running it through uh, interloper films, but I'm not happy with the S-Corp. I don't, I don't think it provides protection. In fact, everything flows through to me. Uh, it's, it's not the most, I, just, I don't even know why it exists, really. I'm not sure. It's like another name for me or something, you know? Charging you more every year, too, for this thing, especially if it's not bringing in income and then you're paying like twice your tax returns. Right, so. and you have to, you know, you should have, it's a long story, but you should have, you know, an address that's not your address, and you need to have a bank accounts in the business, and I, I was under the misconception that to have an LLC, you had to have an equal or some par profit participation by another member of that LLC, but I was just recently advised that that's not true, so I have no idea why I don't have an LLC, and I think Michael, once again, did the right thing without knowing. <laughs> I mean, that's what most people do. They do a L different LLC for every single film, yeah. and that's just the standard. That's what, what I did. Uh, absolutely. Hi, I'm Brian from um, Salt Lake City. I have a question. Um, when you have bands and people who approach you about your music project, are you uh, obligated to have to um, do royalties to them or not? Um, if they're in my project. I mean, if they're on screen and their music actually plays in the film, you do owe them money for their, for their music. You have, to, you have to do what a sync and a master license, so. You're going to pay them, but there's also, if they're in a guild, uh, if they're in After or SAG and they're doing uh, vocals uh, that's for recorded for the film, then you get residuals, but uh, the, uh, basically royalties are going to come if there's a soundtrack album, but you're not going to get royalties from DVD sales from a, from, from a band. A band's not going to get uh, royalties, per se, from a DVD of sales, unless they're contracted, uh, unless that's a contract. You make any contract you want. But there's no guild running around uh, demand. It's a, the, the Musicians uh, Federation is extremely weak. It's the weakest of all the guilds. And they, they haven't got that from, from, from any producer. Any. Um, I, I, yeah, talk right. loud. I, I was just going to ask you, so do you think that you should do a contract on um, everything or just tell them what they're obligated to just, just to do the music? and not be entitled to the DVDs and all that other stuff? Well, if you ask the lawyer, um, yeah, you should have a contract with every piece of music that you're using in your film, both from, as Ani said, the, the sync license for the underlying composition, the publishing, as well as the, the master. But also, re I recommend a soundtrack. I mean, there's so many talented composers. I, I get a, a like message original from a composer. Hiring a composer. Every day, I have a composer reach out to me. I'd love to work with you. You know, and I love working with composers, so I do usually have disease, yeah, disease that I does. suffer from. Yeah, well, you it's know, expensive uh, disease. So, so, so I, I just want to say yeah. one other thing that, that there, like, in, in my film, it's not really a commercial project. 
you know, and, and, and I think that's also a, a, a very interesting and wonderful uh, area to go into. You know, it's like w when we have these discussions, it's kind of like everybody's thinking, you know, big Hollywood movie or something. But it's possible to make a film. It's, you know, we, we have all these wonderful umbrella organizations that can actually make all the, the money that comes to you a tax-deductible donation for the people who give it to you. Um, that helped me out incredibly. I couldn't have made this film without an umbrella organization. And, the you know, I'm even considering just making my whole film company a nonprofit. You know, I can still pay myself a salary. You know, so really what we're talking about is getting rich. You know, I think all of these, I think all of these questions are inherently based on the idea that, you know, we have to create ownership. But there are certain projects that ownership doesn't have that much of an implication. Like if you're trying to change the world or you're trying to change the world for other people, and if you cross over into that, that area, um, it, the world gets a lot easier, in my but, humble opinion. Wait a sec, wait a sec. Okay. You keep saying that your film is not a commercial film. Yeah. Stop saying that. Okay, I'm sorry. It's okay to <laughs> do commerce with your film. You need to. Uh, you know, you, I, I, you made this film to reach people. You have to make deals. And you made a commercial film. You're at Sundance. They wouldn't have even invited you if it wasn't a commercial film. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you can change the world with a commercial film. Like, you need and, to and, have and a it's Bigger the better for you. I want to blow it up. I mean, we got to get it out there. Oh, yes. And be non... You can also do fiscal sponsorship. You know, I'm with the IDA now for a total disruption because I am doing something to change the world in a really right. positive way. We're creating a portal. You can search all my footage down to the word when I release this thing. And every filmmaker, you included, can start doing this where all your, all your footage can be seen and searched down to the word. When we create this technology, and we, we have fiscal sponsorship to do that. But we're also trying to make a profit so we can actually survive and grow and scale. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, well next yeah. year, you guys will have to come back for our politics, uh, the politics of <laughs> filmmaking. Uh, we're just going to stay with yeah, you great. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> anyway, thank you, everyone, for coming. They're uh, giving me the sign that they got to set up for the next event. Uh, thanks. It was great. Thanks, guys. Thank you for coming. Thank you.